0: You're listening to the Pandemic Podcast. We equip you to live the most real life possible and face today's crises. My name is Matt Botker, and I'm joined with two friends. We're on here live. We don't know how long it's going to last. We spent our entire prep time just dealing with technology and all that kind of stuff. This is going to just be a free-for-all. We're just going to talk about whatever. Dr. Stephen Kistler, an epidemiologist at Harvard School of Public Health, and Dr. Barker, so we actually have him on. We got him on AOL dial-up. We're really, really excited to have him on here. Dr. Right. Dr. Mark from the <laughs> Color it's Hospital. Good to be back. I'm going to have to pause to crank the generator every <laughs> couple of too, minutes. Literally. But uh, oh but man, Lord have mercy! How how much work it takes us to get on?
1: Uh, it's pretty remarkable. You know, it's 2021. Yeah. We've been doing this for almost a year, and we still have still mornings have like this. Terrible.
0: <laughs> Struggling mornings. Oh my gosh. But we'll see how long this lasts. Mark is still choppy here and there, but I want to just quick do, hey, if you leave a review, we got some good reviews and next week I'll read some of the reviews. If you haven't read them, Mark and Steven, get on there. There's some, I think Apple delayed them. All of a sudden three came for the past month. And they were awesome, super oh, cool. exciting. Thank you all for leaving a review. We'll read them. We could use some more of them. If you want to, see, if you want to help us, you do that at patreon.com slash pandemic podcast or one-time gift, uh, PayPal, Venmo, all in the show notes. So let's go straight into this because in 20 minutes, Mark goes into high broadband mode with his kids. And so I want to throw it right into you, Dr. Mark. And I, you haven't even been on forever. The last time, we, you were just about ready to yeah, get the vaccine. It
1: feels like a long time. Yeah. That's right. That was oh yeah, I think it was just a couple days okay. after I got the first dose which was yep. early December, mid December. Yep. So it's been like So you month. have a lot
0: to share. Yeah. I want you to talk about three big things. The hospitalizations, <laughs> yeah. what's going on there, but talk about how was it getting sure. the vaccine and the great great revelation of what happened after the vaccine that nobody knows about at least on the podcast. <laughs>
1: Yeah. So I guess we could get it, just go in order. Hospitalizations, you know, we're seeing, we saw a little bit of a peak over the winter again, turned up our staffing. And then right now we're seeing more dwindling cases. So we're doing a lot better from a number standpoint here in Colorado. So we saw a lot of what Stephen had kind of projected, which was this big spring, spring peak, a little bit of a taper off during the summer months, and then another relatively big fall peak. And I think... You know, it's hard to say and it's hard to attribute. I always want to attribute causation, you know, and say like we've been doing a really good job in certain areas of Colorado doing social distancing or the things like that that kept us from getting super overwhelmed. I think as we know with this illness and with big, you know, big epidemiologic processes like that, it's hard to draw direct lines necessarily. But I think, yeah, I'm feeling really you know, fortunate from where I'm sitting right now in terms of how... We've been affected so far in Colorado. And it's been, you know, it's been, it's been tough for a lot of people. It's been tough for a lot of healthcare providers and definitely for a lot of the members of the community. But we're seeing, I think, we're starting to turn that corner again and see case rates going down. We're doing a lot better in terms of volumes in the hospital. We're seeing a lot more kind of non COVID patients coming in too. And, and so I think you know from that standpoint I'm I'm guardedly optimistic we have vaccines rolling out now for healthcare providers and for you know kind of first tier folks who are not frontline workers so we're we'll just kind of see you know I'm hopeful that we're going to start to see a little bit more herd immunity start to see a little bit more you know continued social distancing and relief of the burden on the on the healthcare systems at least fewer sick people in the hospital that's great So that's kind of thing, you know, number one, I, I spent the last week I was off last week off the podcast because I was working. I spent half the week on a non COVID team and then half the week on a COVID team in the hospital. And it was interesting. You know, it was good to dip back in. It had been a few weeks since I'd done the COVID work. And it's always been interesting to kind of see the ways that the therapeutics, there's just kind of slight refinements in the ways that we're using things in our respiratory interventions and things like that. And it's still, you know, it, it, there's still some very, very ill people in the hospital. And I think this is a really tough time to get sick because we're, as a society, we're thinking a lot about getting through this or being done with it and yet you know of course there's still some people who are getting COVID for the first time and who are you know in the hospital and and so i think it's just complex you know as as we interact with that and so but very grateful to you know all my colleagues and all the folks you know kind of top to bottom who've been working just day and night on COVID stuff because it's really makes a big difference. So, so that's hospital updates, vaccine updates. So the vaccine is interesting. I got the Pfizer vaccine. I got my second dose on what is today, Monday on Thursday of last week. And so I got two doses, 21 days apart as was the recommendation. And you know, the first dose was complicated because I'll Tell you tell you about that. The second dose, I did get a little bit symptomatic, and I talked to some of my colleagues. I had a couple colleagues who were like, "I didn't feel anything during the second dose." A couple colleagues were like, "Ooh, I felt real bad (laughs) (laughs) afterwards," for about and so you know we had my symptoms after the second dose were about probably eight hours after the vaccine. I started to feel a little bit icky and then overnight i actually had shaking chills and fevers and then the next all the next day i was feeling a little bit out of it so definitely still pretty fatigued like i had the flu you know with with a bit of an edge on it so a little bit of headache and just a lot of fatigue and and pretty impressive fever chills over the night after the vaccine then about 24 hours after my initial symptom onset so the evening of day you know, day one, I started feeling a lot better. And, you know, just a word, just in terms of like, I think it's super important, of course, for people to be, you know, informed about that and to expect the vaccine side effects. And a couple important things, you know, number one, the the actual kind of immunogenic effect of the vaccine or the thing that makes you feel bad is also helping your body to generate some of the immunity, or at least that's a sign that your body is sending immune cells where it needs to go, that it's irritated, that your, you know, your immune system is woken up and is acting on something. There's recommendations based on um, what I think is pretty decent evidence that pre-treating with things like Tylenol or ibuprofen, may lower some of the effects you know that initial effect of the kind of the immunogenic cells getting the antibodies that they need but that once you've started to have those symptoms like once you've started to feel sick that effect is there those processes are already rolling and so you can probably take some Tylenol and feel a little bit better afterwards, but not recommended to pre-treat. Stephen, is that what you've been hearing from your, your side of things as Actually, well? Actually,
2: yeah, I, I wasn't aware of that, so I defer to you, doc. <laughs> <laughs> That's
1: great. Yeah, there's, so there's been some evidence in the pediatric literature as well that pre-treating with like acetaminophen you know, beforehand, before vaccines, may slightly reduce the amount of antibodies that are produced. And so my You know, soft recommendation would be to avoid pre-treatment, allow those symptoms to show up, and then if you're if you're feeling bad, to go ahead and treat after the fact. And the other thing I think that's important to remember is that none of these vaccines confer a hundred percent immunity. And so, if you start to develop symptoms like cough or shortness of breath, or if your symptoms last longer than that. 24 hour, you know, window or 36 hour window after the vaccine, you should still, you know, seek medical attention and consider the fact that maybe there's an infection going on on top of the vaccine effects. And so I think that that's important as well so that you don't attribute, you know, long-lasting or respiratory kind of specific organ system effects just to the vaccine. Uh,
0: which yeah, brings it, me you have a perfect example to of this.
1: part of the reason that I've been gone for a while. Yeah. <laughs> Which so unfortunately, my I and my whole family contracted COVID late or right after our episode last month. I was actually feeling pretty sick the last time I was on the podcast and had gotten a COVID test the day before, but was waiting on the results. And it turned positive. The timing was pretty terrible. You know, I think there were there've been reports of other folks who've had a similar event where they got the first vaccine and then sometime in the next week or so they tested positive for covid and i think it's hard to you know i don't i think it's really important to stress the vaccine doesn't give people covid it doesn't contain the genetic material that makes that possible so it contains just a snippet of the spike protein and and you can't get covid from the vaccine that being said getting the vaccine number 1 doesn't necessarily mean you haven't been exposed to COVID either before or shortly after. Before you have full immunity, and it's not a hundred percent. I don't know. To be honest with you, I have a, I have a lot of thoughts. You know, it was it was pretty. It was really stressful. We were very very fortunate as a family and. And we had, you know, relatively w- what I would consider objectively mild symptoms, though subjectively it felt terrible. Yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, we were really fortunate. Nobody ended up hospitalized. You know, we haven't seen any of the severe complications right now, you know, in, in anybody of our immediate family who got it. And it, but it did make me sicker than anything, has made me in quite some time. I was pretty knocked out for several days. You know, I had like three days of recurrent fevers and just pretty crushing fatigue for about 10 or 11 days. And so did my wife, Katie. She was really for, you know, three or four days was really staying in bed for most of the time. And it it was, I don't know where the, the immediate thought is I really want to attribute causation. I want to know exactly where we got it and why, you know, I want to say, this is where I slipped up or I made a mistake. So I can blame something, you know, for getting it and it's tough because we've actually been even more careful over the last month than we had been you know previously because you know we're anticipating seeing seeing my in-laws and we'd really been you no know, I, I wonder if perhaps i picked it up at work and had late manifestations you know from it i think is probably the most likely and but it's hard to know you know and so my you know some of my reflections i think related to that in addition to the symptoms itself I was impressed by how str- how stressful and how frustrating it was just to be sick you know and particularly to be sick with something that we've all been talking about and trying to avoid yeah. for you know, yeah. <laughs> who knows how long it feels like forever yeah. and even though i you know from an from a like an intellectual standpoint you know i've done i've thought a lot and and read a lot and through you know it, about the way that illness is this big interruption, and that we really want to attribute meaning to that, that any illness, no matter how big, immediately kind of throws you into this state of, of, of chaos, whether it's a minor chaos or a major chaos, where you're all of a sudden, you know, you're needing to attribute how did this happen, you know, and I, I want to know, essentially, what does this, you know, what does this mean for us, you know, and, and it's very hard, because there's not, answers to all of those things. And even knowing, even expecting, you know, that that's what you might go through, going through it yourself is, you know, is is a very different thing. Mm -hmm. COVID's tough and COVID in particular, you know, in the setting of this pandemic is tough because it's, it's such an isolating illness and any illness, I think, regardless of what it is, one of the big, the big difficulties of illness is that it is fundamentally kind of an isolating thing. You know, you're experiencing something in your body that's that other people aren't necessarily experiencing. You add on that the element of, you know, contagion or worry about the people around you. And, you know, the tremendous, whether it's earned or not, a sense of guilt, you know, especially in this pandemic of like, I must have done something wrong. You know, I've been trying really hard to not get it so that I don't spread it to other people. I must have slipped up somewhere. And so there's this, you know, this overlay of, of guilt and frustration and, you know, all of those kind of building emotions. And, and I think for me, like I recognize that I could see it happening while it was happening, but experiencing it was a whole different thing and very humbling. You know, I think it's just so humbling. That's my big takeaway. You know, I think Our pattern, we've done a lot of, you know, kind of like armchair epidemiology as a family to try and figure (laughs) out like what happened and when, and, you know, join the club, like everybody in the world is doing, you know, these days. And, And even though, you know, we've been talking about it, and I feel like we had a pretty good grip on how this spreads and how to avoid it and things like that, you know, very humbling to actually get it. And very humbling, I think, to go through that minor experience, you know, fortunately, we were spared, you know, the most severe, but even that minor experience of being, The patient and feeling this in your body and in my body and worrying about my family members was just very very humbling and always so humbling i think to remember how how different that is and to be just super super sensitive and attentive as i'm caring for people and, and to recognize that overlay, you know, the, the very complex overlay of, you know, all those things. I do have to say, you know, Stephen was just stellar and super helpful, you know, and it's always great to have him on the hotline and like, (laughs) you know, all these questions. And also to be honest, you know, the things that, that helped us the most were these little gestures of care from our family. We had my, my aunts, you know, who live close by in Denver brought us Christmas dinner and like waved at us through the, through the window of the house and dropped it on the porch. And, you know, I I have another aunt who lives in Texas and Pueblo who like sent us a meal online. And to be honest with you, I mean, those things really meant a lot. It was incredible and, and just so humbling. And so just a lot of gratitude for you know, the folks around us and and thinking about all the folks who've been sick, you know, this year a lot in that. So kind of an intense, you know, thing we have, we have several friends who've been sick recently as well. And, you know, again, I keep going back to the, I kind of want to wrap this up before, you know, before reading small group starts (laughs) at my end, I've been thinking a lot about how we've emphasized again and again on this podcast that for young, healthy people, you know, I think there's an argument that's like, well, you know, your risk is relatively low. You shouldn't worry so much that, the reason that we are so careful, the reason that we're doing this is not necessarily even for ourselves or our immediate communities, but it's that every single infection event puts other people at risk, often folks who we don't see Mm -hmm. and often folks who we forget about in our daily lives because we don't see them. You know, these these are the people who are living in group homes or nursing homes who are living on the streets. It's not exclusively that. You know, I think there's people very much You know who are like us, who are young, healthy people who have severe side effects. But it's really, it's for other people that we're being so careful. And so, trying to reconcile the fact that you know, even though it felt really bad from a, it just felt kind of morally like you know, crushing to finally get it and to be, you know, to to be a potential vector and all of that, and to worry about you know, health. And yet, I think it it kind of reaffirms that we're still in it all together, you know, and we're really, really trying, um, to do our best and kind of get through this all together, not, not being paranoid, but just being careful. And that the same old things I think, you know, still hold true. So yeah, it's been kind of a trip. It's been, it's been a a little bit of a tough month, but I'm just super, super grateful, you know, and, and we'll just kind of, Kind of see how this changes. I think I have a lot of thoughts, you know, that are still, still getting crystallized about that experience, you know, for myself. And so, very grateful to the folks, you know, who've who helped us out this month. So,
0: thank you for sharing, Mark. You know, it's a couple things. That the first thing is just a a, like a PSA that, like you said, everything still holds true. Wearing masks, social distancing, these are all really important things that really help to protect us. I know some of us I've shared. Uh, your story to a couple people very close to me who then got very nervous of like, well, if Mark Mm -hmm. can get it, then Mm -hmm. uh, holy, then there's no way of escaping it, right? And I just want to say, I don't Mm -hmm. want to go down that rabbit hole of like, I mean, we never, we we promoted, we never talked about this, but there's this Korean study of this like, you know, infection that happened just randomly somebody being 30 feet away but in a jet stream of an air conditioner that happened to be siphoned directly down them like eight tables and got the whole table infected but nobody else that is totally uncommon but Mm -hmm. it does happen right it's really random
1: yeah Yeah. and i think that's i think that's one of the things that that illness in general and this in particular strikes home is that it, it doesn't mean that we shouldn't do the common sense things but the, the level of personal control yeah i, <laughs> I still i still had a pretty strong yeah, sense yeah. that i could control yeah. this pandemic at least in my little universe and and giving up that even that little sense of control is super super hard you know for me it, i'm very con- <laughs> very control oriented <laughs> yeah. you know and again it's just like it's super super humbling so yeah and i think yeah, <laughs> yeah. i mean exactly what, that i don't think it changes what, what we're doing I'm...
0: So the, the the last thing I'll say I know before your thing is, it reminds me, I just dropped an episode of Living the Real, but I don't know if this applies to you, Mark, but it does apply to me. I you know, call it the Christmas effect, where you know we start preparing in October and November for Christmas, and we're revving up, or going nonstop, and my boys are talking about gifts, and then December 25th happens, and there's somewhat of a letdown. And, you know, and Mm -hmm. and, and, now it's different in this pandemic, right? It didn't go to physical church this time. So there's a lot of differences that that change the mystery of and the beauty of Christmas. Mm -hmm. But in general, there Mm -hmm. is a letdown on Christmas because we put so much into the expectations and preparation. It just can't really take the burden of, of what we're doing versus mm-hmm. the, the simplicity of Christmas, those who celebrate Christmas, right? And I feel like us in a pandemic, right. it makes it all the worse because we've been like preparing for this since March and we're like working so flipping hard that when, it, when if somebody gets it, it's all the more devastating because the, the mm-hmm. divide between the expectation and then the experience, it's such a chasm now that there's just no way the burden. Mm-hmm. So you'd probably feel it anyway, but this one of all things- and then being doctor mark on top yeah. of this right i mean <laughs> right. you you're you're in right. a complex reality that's why my heart just broke when i it, when when i heard you said it, and now i know that people have way worse and i'm not making it lighter, yeah. though, but just in this situation yeah. with you and the expectations of yeah. christmas and your family all just kind of yeah. know, out the window
1: yeah. yeah 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 i think it it emphasized the elements of sort of the the waiting in darkness the longing you know for for help and a recognition of needing help that comes from outside myself, those elements of Christmas. It was very much, this was a year of Advent and less a year of Christmas, <laughs> to be honest with you. And and it was, and I think this has been, you know, this has just been a, a very long year and protracted year of, of going deep and waiting. And, and it just, I don't know, it's, it's been, in some ways it was powerful in that way, you know, illuminating that kind of flip side of the christmas story for us and our family in in a really powerful way that you know i'm hoping to kind of linger in and and meditate on a little bit more so okay. anyway okay. yeah i appreciate it thanks for yeah thanks for your support you know and prayers and thoughts and every and everybody who is you know involved and and i think Again, just kind of continuing to turn turn outwards towards our neighbors, just super super important. You know, all, all the small ways we do it really matters.
0: Absolutely, yeah. And I just say that I put this in the podcast so that the protagonist of all human history is the beggar. The idea that oh, we we try to we try to be able to to, to, to white knuckle our life. We have a tendency to control, white knuckle, control. But in the end fulfillment comes with our hands open wide in a state of poverty mm-hmm. and just receiving. Life as uncertain. That doesn't mean we don't try to play in, but we. But we also, in the midst of planning, we elevate our hearts towards receiving uncertainty so that when the time does come, we can find the gift in that. It's so easier said than done. If I have COVID, I'd be just like crying like a little baby on my chair, <laughs> yeah. h- hating life and telling Mark that everything I ever spoke about yeah. is crap. And I hate everyone. <laughs> so, yeah. So, so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's so true. It's so true. <laughs> so, so, <laughs> it's so easy to say it when I don't have it. So, But thanks for sharing, Mark. I really appreciate yeah. that, man.
1: Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah.
0: We're going to keep going. I don't know how long, how much we'll have Mark on here, but you can pan out whenever you need to, but I want to get in. There's that's a lot good. of stuff that Mark said that's kind of related. I want to hit to you, Stephen. you know, let's just go straight to the variant because I want to get updates on the variant. I've heard more. This is the one thing I want to talk about right now. I'm a little confused on the variant because I hear a couple things. Now I'm going to try to boil this down and I need help understanding. Number one, we've learned that the coronavirus in general does not mutate as quickly as like the flu. I just read the article. I put it here that you guys can see in the show notes. It's like something like ten to one when it comes to, right? But then I hear in the same article, however, with this new variant, right? Well, now we're so I'm, I'm a little confused on where we're at in the variant. How worried should we be? I saw an, uh, an article about South Africa, which seems to be maybe a similar mutation. And like, well, will this affect the vaccine? So I kind of want to get an update of like how again how concerned are we should be with the variant, and was this to be kind of expected? Stephen? Or is this kind of like an anomaly, like, wait, this coronavirus may not hold the same kind of adaptations and changes as we've known in other coronaviruses?
2: Yeah, so I think a couple of things here. So the, you're right. The I, I think to answer some of this, we need to take a step back and talk a little bit about viral evolution and how that works. So Usually, the ways that viruses evolve and it is through sort of slowly accumulating these additions, deletions, mutations in their genetic code. And most of these things are either meaningless, they don't really do anything to the virus, or they hurt the virus. And so then the virus mutates, and then it gets outcompeted or dies out based off of its relatives. Once in a while, it gets lucky. The virus gets lucky, we get unlucky. <laughs> and yeah. and so the virus mutates, and, and that mutation basically makes it a little bit easier to spread which makes it sort of outcompete its relatives, which allows it to spread really far. And so that's similar to what we saw earlier this year where there was that single, what we call a point mutation. I forget what exactly the numbers were, but basically it was a single mutation that made the virus a little bit more transmissible, a little easier to spread than its relatives. And so that new variant that was earlier this spring was able to take over and is now the dominant variant in the world, which is a different one than the one that originally started spreading at the beginning of the pandemic. Now, there are a lot of ways to measure the rate of evolution of viruses. Usually we measure it in terms of how quickly these point mutations accumulate. And so when you're talking about the relative evolution rate of coronavirus of SARS-CoV-2 versus flu, that's, that's what we're talking about. Flu really mutates quite quickly relative to this average mutation speed of the coronavirus. Now, with both flu and now apparently with, with COVID, there's another element to evolution where once in a while it makes these big leaps basically and and this is really well characterized in flu and in in flu we have a name for it we call it the difference between antigenic drift which is that first thing i was talking about versus antigenic shift which is where there's this substantial qualitative change at the proteins that are around the virus capsule that basically allow it to evade the human immune system and that and that's why we have that's that's part of the reason why we get flu pandemics because rather than sort of this slow shift that allows it to sort of evade the immune system little by little and we get these seasonal outbreaks, then suddenly we basically have a new virus on our hands. And so, so, so these things are partly responsible for this evolution of flu, which happens both in this very gradual way, but then once in a while in this really sort of dramatic way. Now, with coronaviruses, we've seen this sort of slow progress of evolution, but we we weren't sure whether or not it could also undergo these sort of big shifts. Now, the reason why the coronavirus might undergo big shifts biologically is different than the reason why flu undergoes its shifts. the The structures of these two viruses are very different, but epidemiologically, qualitatively speaking, it looks like there's something similar going on where in some very rare circumstances, you can nevertheless get these really big genetic changes in the coronavirus that leads to something like the new variant that we have circulating now. Now, as scientists, we're still trying to figure out what exactly it is that leads to those shifts, because, like I said, it's it's different than the flu. So, all of the same sort of biological mechanisms that we have in mind don't don't apply to the coronavirus. It's still kind of a mystery. But this is part of what we were talking about last time about you know maybe maybe there's something about immunocompromised patients who are getting certain types of therapies that allow the virus to evolve and sort of accumulate these mutations within a single body, and then it can sort of spread. But that's all still speculation, to my knowledge. You know. But it's, mm-hmm. it's one plausible reason why why we might see these sorts of big shifts. And so that's that seems to be what's happening. And and that's important because prior to this new variant, we didn't know that that was a possibility for the coronavirus. Yeah. But now it very clearly is. And it suggests that the same sort of thing could happen again in the future. And so so it's something we're going to have to continue watching closely. So not only is this new variant important to in in its own right, because it's more transmissible. And so we're going to have to work a little bit harder to keep control of it. But also it means that it can continue to evolve in this way as well. And so we're going to have to sort of keep up our surveillance to make sure we're aware of it when these things start to happen and hopefully prevent them from spreading too far when they do.
0: Okay. That makes sense. Uh, Yeah. So this is all the more reason why that I think we're just promoting the vaccine and why it needs to be in the hands of more people. It's not just propaganda. It's the fact that there's just the coronavirus is everywhere, and it's and it's mutating. And it's even though the more chance it has to mutate, the more chances it has to turn into something that maybe the vaccine doesn't have the quite impact. Not that it is now, but it can turn to that. Right. So hopefully another, another PSA for hopefully getting in the hands. And this is why. I think you probably mentioned, we mentioned this a couple weeks ago, where when Biden becomes president and uh, that he mentioned, you just mentioned to me that he just recently said that releasing probably all the vaccines for first dosages to everyone in the US. Is that correct?
2: Yeah. To my understanding, that's that's his plan now. Now, of course, there's there's a lot of room for reasonable disagreement as to whether or not that's a good idea. That's that's an ongoing debate among epidemiologists too. So- you know it's it's a choice for sure and i think that it, there are good reasons for it there are also reasons why it could be risky as well but everything we're doing right now is a little bit risky and so so i think there's a lot of room for for reasonable debate on that but that seems to be the plan that that he has adopted based on his advice from his advisors and so that seems to be the direction we're probably going to head
0: okay great what another question related to Something related to this when it comes to spread is I I swear, I thought it was like weeks ago or maybe it was months ago, we talked about the idea that asymptomatic people really did not transmit that often. And I just saw this recent, maybe I was wrong. I saw this recent article that the CDC model found that I think it was like something like 60, 59% of all transmissions come from people without symptoms. Now, 35% of those cases come from pre-symptomatic people. So that's different. But still 24% come from people who never develop symptoms, which seems to be a a decent chunk. Now, was I am I under the misunderstanding that that actually was never the case that we thought that we that asymptomatic people did not really spread it or is this new nuance information?
2: So there's been a lot of sort of it's been really hard to pin down. I've always and sort of figured that asymptomatic people were doing a lot of spreading and I think that's sort of been an assumption by many of my colleagues, simply because it's it's hard to reconcile sort of what's happening without that. Now, yeah. pre-symptomatic spread, absolutely. And I think that yeah. a, a huge bulk of transmission is happening from people yeah. just prior to developing symptoms. But there are some people who d- develop no symptoms or minimal symptoms as well. And I think the key distinction there is that, they, well... So based on some of the work that we've done, it seems like people who do and don't show symptoms still have pretty similar levels of virus in their system. We're not entirely sure what it is that leads to symptoms versus not. So that suggests yeah. they're likely to be just about equally transmissible as people who are showing symptoms. Yeah. Now, even if that's not the case, symptoms are a pretty good way of limiting spread. You know, when, when you start feeling sick, you're, you're probably not going to be going very far, as Mark can attest to. you know. <laughs> and, and so part of what you get is this sort of balancing where even if a person who is asymptomatic isn't necessarily producing as much virus, they're still going to be engaging the community in the same way. And so that effectively makes them responsible for more spread, even if on an individual level, they might not be as infectious. So epidemiologically speaking, asymptomatic people and pre-symptomatic people are playing a huge role. And I think that that gets at this key distinction between looking at things from a public health perspective, versus looking at things from an individual perspective, where even a person who might not be as contagious individually can still have a profound impact on the overall population spread of this disease.
0: Great. Awesome. Thanks. Well, Mark, I want to throw it back to you for a couple of things. I don't know if you did much study on this. I know we uh, threw a couple of things your way Anything I, I saw this in the news. Mm-hmm. A couple things in the news about new new research on how COVID affects the lungs. We mentioned you and I talked about there was this random article about how maybe COVID potentially again, this is just maybe anecdotal evidence could affect the brain directly. We know it we know it definitely affects it indirectly by you, Mark, you were just saying just feeling fatigue and just feeling maybe foggy headed, but that's more like a a side effect. But those two things as, and then as well as this whole thing of vitamin D. So the lungs research, vitamin D, this has been a perennial thing that I've been trying to bring up all the time. Article upon article comes up. I don't know if there's any relevance whatsoever, or if there's just something, a preventative thing. I have no idea. Do you have anything to speak to about these three things, especially within your clinical work?
1: I'll, I can talk a little bit about the, <clears throat> excuse me, about the lung and the brain, but less about vitamin D, just because I haven't been up to yep, date on that sure. recently. So I'll try and I'll try and look that up, because that is a question that keeps coming up. And there's, there's, I think one of the places that we see that the vitamin D question is that. As they've tested individuals who have severe COVID, a lot of those individuals seem to be vitamin D deficient or, you know, maybe more than we would expect. But it's hard to know if there's some testing bias. We talked a little bit, I think, early, early on that there was some evidence that vitamin D may help lower the severity of certain respiratory infections kind of large and so wondering if that maps to this but to be honest i haven't reviewed all that data in great detail yet so i'll have to look at look at the vitamin d stuff a little bit more in depth before i speak about it the lung the article you sent me about the lung you know i what what i see in that is that that adds maybe a little bit of nuance to our thoughts about how sars cov2 affects lung tissue and what i'm but largely what we're seeing is the same thing that i think about with regards to a lot of viral respiratory infections, which is that there's potentially a direct effect of the virus itself, you know, causing cell damage. And then there's the secondary effect of the immune response. Uh, and so you'll see things like w- words like cytokine storm or immune mediated damage. And all of that is is similar to what we've been thinking. And really, to be honest with you, it's very similar to what the flu does. It's very similar to what a lot of our respiratory illnesses do to lung tissue. At a certain point, you know, the appropriate body response to an infection can become overwhelming and start to damage lung, you know, our own tissues. And that's something that we see sort of across the board in, and it's sort of a fundamental tenet of our, especially critical care that at a certain point, the balance that should be helping our health ends up pushing a little bit too far. And we start to get sick because of that immune response. And I think it's interesting, you know, just a side note on that in terms of, the vaccine side effects, they were seeing a little bit more of the post-vaccine blues, you know, the malaise and chills and stuff in younger folks than they are in older populations. And I think that's in part because it's the appropriate immune response to a foreign antigen, you know, and you have a little bit more robust, you tend, younger people tend to have a little bit more robust response because your immune system is kind of raring to go. And so, that can be, you know, in flu and COVID, that immune response sometimes can cause some of that damage and some of the more severe damage later on down the road. So I think that what, what I saw in that article was it was talking in particular about macrophages, which is one of the cell types that goes to respond to infections. You know, we see there's lots and lots of different cell types, lots the different mechanisms but i think it's all a part of a similar story which is that this is you know there's multiple things going on one of them's the virus one of them's the immune response and and you know sort of that's that's kind of what we've seen seen throughout the other question is about you know can sars cov2 directly invade the brain there's been some i think pathology studies of you know individuals on autopsy who've shown you know they think you know presumably there's some crossing of the blood brain barrier symptomatically you know a lot of people have what kind of is described as brain fog associated with the covid you know virus there's a lot of headaches and things like that and and it looks like perhaps the spike protein itself can cross the b- blood brain barrier so they think that probably the whole thing can i wouldn't be surprised i mean i think it's pretty <clears throat> i'm not sure to be honest with you how much that changes the way that i think about the whole virus and infection i wouldn't be surprised if there's some you know permeability of the blood brain barrier to this just like a lot of other tissues in the body yeah i'm interested to see i think we're going to understand a lot more about the pathways and exactly how this affects each of our tissues in a few years as we kind of get a little bit better resolution data but i think that's you know it seems to be physiologically plausible, at least. And, and again, you know, it's one of those things that I think is important. It helps our understanding it doesn't necessarily change the way that we act or our kind of epidemiologic recommendations. But, you know, one of the strangest symptoms for me of this whole virus was getting, was losing my sense of smell. And I think that's, you know, and while it looked like from some studies that that was actually related to support cells rather than neurons in the nose and kind of the nasopharynx that it's, that you lose those support cells and then the neurons get a little bit sick and they stop doing their job. And then it has returned, you know, for me, though for some people at last a lot longer it lasts about a week and a half for me the the you know loss of sense of smell to me that's an indication that there's effects on t- on all sorts of tissues that you know all over the body and uh, you know the long-term effects of that and and even the short term i think we're still working on characterizing so
0: okay. is that and helpful one, does that kind of speak to what yeah, you're that is, saying? yeah that's yeah. exactly and i think just uh, a uh, a note of just a caveat that you're talking about the immune response to vaccines and just to let people know that if you do not have a immune response that's that dramatic, it doesn't mean that the vaccine isn't as effective as other people that have. That, that, that's correct. There's, not a, there's not a conversation yeah. between
1: those I don't two. think there, there's not a good – I don't think you can draw a line between how bad you feel and how strong your immunity is. I, but I think it, it's not directly related like that and so I, well you know i think it's just part of part and parcel maybe you, you know you have you have the bad luck of getting sick or you have the good luck of not getting sick and none of that's necessarily correlated to your subsequent level of immunity
0: yeah okay great well i end on this is kind of related so let's Look back at Christmas, and now we're two weeks in, and we're seeing a surge in certain areas. Now, Mark, you're saying it looks like Colorado's looking pretty good at the moment, which is awesome. I don't know what it'll be tomorrow or the next week, but other places are suffering tremendously. Like my sister in Southern California are just being rocked and just really unnerving. Stephen, I want to throw it to you of just like, where do you think we're at in this? Now, it's about two. Is this kind of the expected effects of Christmas? Are we a little early? Are we right in the middle of it? And where do we expect to see this with the variant? And the the reason why I ask this question is because some people are saying, well, you know— I don't think we're gonna be like the UK because we're different. We we didn't, you know, we already are going crazy here in the US. And some people predict that maybe up to ten percent of the population has COVID or had COVID or, you know, is immune and wearing masks. So we're in a different area than other countries, right? So there may be a chance this variant may not have the similar impact, maybe not have as many hosts, right? To 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 be as widespread as the UK. So I'm hearing this. Where do you think we're at generally? Are we in the in the midst of the 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 Christmas break? And in the next three to four weeks, do you expect the variant to have a big impact on this? Because I'm not seeing a huge change, but I'm just seeing continual rises right now in the US in certain areas.
2: Yeah, it's I mean it's so hard to project forward. I think that the the variant is absolutely going to make our job more difficult in the next few uh weeks to months easily. I think in the absence of the variant, I would probably expect that that the coronavirus would continue to spread in different communities but that sort of as we emerge from January, it would probably get a little bit easier and cases might start to come down and especially with the vaccine coming in, like things would start sort of looking up. I've been pretty alarmed by what's been happening in the UK with the new variant. The the rate at which cases have been spiking is is pretty remarkable and if you look at particular places within the US, it's hard to attribute, you know, whether whether any of this is due to the new variant or just to holiday, you know, holiday travel. But you know, across the US, cases sort of are flattening, still continuing to rise somewhat. But in some specific communities, we've seen them going down and now they're spiking right back up. And so I think that One thing that's in our benefit is that it doesn't seem like as far as we can tell, the variant has really gotten, it's definitely spreading in much of the U.S., but probably not at the same prevalence as it is in the U.K. And so my hope is that we got to get through the holidays so that any super spreading events that happened over the course of the holidays were hopefully dominated by the less transmissible variant and not the new one, which will hopefully make it a little bit harder for the new one to sort of get its toehold. and in, in addition to that, we're sort of moving ever more outside of the span of time when other coronaviruses tend to spread most. And so whereas in the UK, sort of everything seemed to align in the worst possible timing, I think that here, even though the new variant is probably going to surge, hopefully we have some other things, including the vaccine, including the time of year, including the distance from the holidays that will sort of counteract that a little bit. So we've got a really difficult job on our hands. Absolutely. I mean, this is like, the I think we really need to take this new variant very seriously and recognize that it's going to be that much more difficult to control, that it will require that many more people to get vaccines, and, and that the level of immunity that's in the population will help. But we're still a long way away from herd immunity in the United States, yeah. at least in most communities of the United States. So there's still plenty of plenty of people who could still get infected. But I think if, you know epidemiologists should never make projections that aren't based on <laughs> aren't based on an awful lot of models but but I do I this isn't a projection but it's a hope and it's it's a I think it's a it's a well-grounded hope that that we will probably see cases continue to rise and sort of be at a high level for a, a longer period of time than we would have otherwise but I'm hopeful that we won't see the same sort of catastrophic spikes across the. US that we've seen in the UK of course in places like Southern California you know things are in a pretty dire situation. Right now, but but my hope is that that won't sort of play out sort of broadly across the U.S. and instead it'll be hard, but but hopefully not
0: catastrophic. Yeah, no good. I mean, I'm hopeful that 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 your hope will be the hope that comes to comes to pass. A personal question: This is hopefully it's useful to like. What should I do? Because like, I I feel like I'm in this weird position of like cases aren't that bad in Colorado; they're not too bad, but there's this looming variant. So, do I host my class in person? tomorrow, and just and say so, yeah, you know, we're still okay, or should I start having my meetings again in person, but you know being cautious is my normal thing, or should I say no? The variant is a variable by which I should take an extra level of precaution and buffer myself. I just feel, I, I almost wish I don't, I, I don't want to be Southern California, no way and. H.E. double hockey sticks, but it right. would make my decision making a lot easier. I would just stay home and fear life. <laughs> just joking, don't fear life. But any 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 ideas, recommendations, what I should be doing in the midst of this? It'd be imprudent, just normal stuff, or should I take an extra level, one step further, of caution?
2: I think that that not necessarily taking a extra step, one step further yet, but I think that just like this is a good time to check back in and sort of ask ourselves, you know, to what extent are we? Actually, doing the things that the, that we hoped to do with with the spread of this virus all along, you know, how are how are we doing with mask wearing and with distancing and these kinds of things? And just sort of check in. I don't think we necessarily need to, like, really go even harder than than we were this this spring. You know, right sure. now it's again the same sorts of things that we've been doing all along should still be effective against this new variant. It's just a good time. You know, it's it's the start of a new year. Make it our resolution to to just take a step back and evaluate our actions and think about how we're doing and and if there's any anything that you can do that that maybe is in line with you know what you what you feel you know maybe should be doing all along then then, then go for it absolutely uh, but i don't think we're at the point yet where we need to like double down even harder necessarily
0: yeah that's helpful my one last personal question totally random, it, it might help other people my grandmother is going to uh, going into assisted living soon in two weeks two or three weeks. So I'm not in charge of this, but I'm hearing how it's going because they want to get her vaccinated before because there's actually going to be more exposure. She's 90. Yep. So, and I just don't know your recommendation right now they we're working to negotiate her getting the vaccine, going in to get her vaccine before she goes into assisted living and they're giving two weeks before she gets moved in, but that's before she gets her second one. Is that a typical okay response or should we push to like, no, let's just see if we can push to like the second one, then add another two weeks on top of that and push everything back. Like, what do you consider being a, a good good response for that
2: yeah well, and maybe Mark can step in on this one too but from my perspective I think that that's I think that having the first dose and waiting two weeks is probably okay. okay it seems like the first dose does give some amount of like a decent amount of protection the big question is how long that protection lasts but as long as she's planning to get the second dose on schedule I think that 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 seems like a perfectly reasonable thing to do right. Mark. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, I agree with that. You know, I think there's so many unknowns and
1: so much that we try to control with all of this. I think that getting one dose of the vaccine is a great mm-hmm. idea. And, you know, as long as they're using appropriate protocols to keep her safe in the in the home, which I you know presume that everybody is, I would say just, you know, move forward with what what you guys right. need to do. Yeah, yeah. great
0: thank you guys. Thank you all for listening to this week's episode. I have a lot of editing to do up front, all the crazy technology, is something going to get going on that soon. If you want to leave a review, please do so on Apple Podcasts. If you want to get in contact with Steven, S-T-P-H-E-N, K-S-S-L-E-R and Twitter, Matt at livingthereal.com. com. would love to hear back from all the peeps around the world who listen to our podcast, hear how it's going and how you guys are faring. And if you want to listen to my Living the Real Podcast, episode 16, you can find that in the show notes. And I think that's it. I hope you guys have all a wonderful week and we'll see you next Monday. Take care and bye-bye.